Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes that come out smooth, creamy, and delicious in just 20 seconds. So go to BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout to get 12% off your order. That's promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order at checkout. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast, the place where the cool, creepy kids come to learn about their true crime. I'm your host, author and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me. This week we are going into the vaults, so to speak, to cover the most requested case that I have ever gone over, that being the West Memphis Three. Now, I initially did this during the first year of the show, but some people were turned off by my use of music in the background. There was also a few mistakes as far as names and dates. So, because so many people wrote in to me and requested that I cover it again, here we are. Before I get into it, however, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for the DeathCast, DeathCast Pod, or Corpse Creek Publishing. You can find me on most social media sites under any one of those monikers. If you would like to help the show out, there's a couple ways you can do that. First and foremost, go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe to the show, and leave a five-star review. The other way that you can help the show out is going to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast and buy me a cup of coffee. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers went missing from their neighborhood in West Memphis, Arkansas. This is an extremely famous case, and it's also an extremely controversial case because if you listen to the three men who were, in my opinion, correctly convicted of these crimes, the entire thing was a frame-up by a Bible-toting, anti-heavy metal police force in West Memphis. However, what we're going to do in this series is something a lot of people don't like to do, and that's look at the actual facts that led to the conviction of the three men, that being Damian Wayne Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. The reason we're going to be doing this is because so much has been written and said about this particular case that is false. 
such as the idea that they were exonerated in court when they were let out, which is not true. In point of fact, the three convicted killers pled guilty to an Alfred plea, which basically means the state has enough evidence to convict them if brought to trial again. However, the defendants maintain their right to protest their innocence. So, for all of the supporters out there, the West Memphis Three were never exonerated. There has never been a shred of evidence to show that they were exonerated. The only individuals who believe that they are innocent are those who have never really looked into this case beyond what is in the three Paradise Lost movies that absolutely piece of shit book and movie by Maura Lever, Devil's Knot, which leaves out massive amounts of information, and the talking heads from Hollywood who got behind these three men. I'd also like to point out, I was a believer in these three men's innocence until I saw the second movie and read the first book that Damien Eccles wrote while he was in prison, which painted a much different image of him than even he himself presented within the Paradise Lost films. This led me to begin to question whether or not the movies were accurate, the things that were being said about three men were correct, and that eventually led me to a place called Callahan, that's C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N, dot mysite dot com. This is the only verified repository for all of the court records on this case online. And anything that I'm going to talk about as we discuss this case can be found on that site or in the three books written by journalist Gary Meese, who may be the preeminent expert in the journalism world on this case. So we're going to go over a couple of things very briefly to dispel the idea that the three men who were convicted were, in fact, innocent. I mean, we're going to get into this stuff in much greater detail later on, but right out the get-go, I want to dispel some of these nonsensical ideas. The first is that the three men had airtight alibis. This was disproven and has continuously been disproven, despite what Eccles and his supporters might say. Eccles offered up a number of different alibis during the time of the crimes, which were proven false both by law enforcement and in a court of law. Despite what he has repeatedly said over the years, Jason Baldwin never gave any alibi when he was being questioned by his police, his mother Pam Hicks, quickly stepped in and refused to allow them to speak to her son. So Baldwin never, in fact, gave any sort of alibi. And Jesse Miss Kelly's alibis were also shot down in flames very quickly. 
The next claim that we are going to shoot down is that Jesse Miss Kelly was a barely functioning adult with an IQ somewhere in the range of special needs. That's actually true and false. Miss Kelly did test at a very low IQ. However, people that knew him during this period of time said he was not a stupid individual and he was not easily misled or manipulated. To further bolster that fact, Miss Kelly's lawyer and father are on video where you can distinctly hear one of them telling the other that Jesse needs to dumb it down for the camera. Now, the reason that the West Memphis Three supporters tout this fact out is they like to claim that he was interrogated for somewhere around 12 hours without his father's consent. Both of these statements are false. Miss Kelly Sr. did in fact give police permission to talk to his son, and after a very short period of time, we're talking, you know, an hour, hour and a half of speaking with Jesse, the police again contacted Miss Kelly Sr. to get permission to take his statement and to record anything that he might have said. And the reason for this was after a very short period of questioning, Miss Kelly began to confess. This was not a coerced confession, and yes, I am well aware that he changed certain facts about this confession after the fact. And this brings us to our third theory that we are going to shoot down, and that is that Jesse Miss Kelly was hand-fed to confessions. Jesse Miss Kelly confessed a known total of six times. After that first confession, he repeatedly confessed not only to law enforcement, but to the officers driving him to prison the day that he was sentenced to life, to other people in prison, his own lawyer, at which point Miss Kelly swore on a stack of Bibles that he was telling the truth and stated something to the effect of, yes, I'm telling the truth. Nobody ever asked me to swear on a stack of Bibles before, otherwise I would have done so. He also, he also confessed to the DA's office, even though his lawyer told him not to do it. Now, this is on recording, and Miss Kelly tells his lawyer, no, I want to do this. He also tells the prosecutors during this interview that everything he is saying is in fact true, and that he is doing this of his own free will. In addition to those, there is also kind of muddied, but there are stories out there that he confessed to others, namely prisoners, and it wasn't really until the supporters got involved with this case after the release of Paradise Lost that Miss Kelly began changing his tune. So that's very important and needs to be remembered. The fourth fallacy that we are going to be dispelling at this point is that there were no witnesses. 
there was a family who was very well acquainted with Damien Eccles, who went to the police and told them that on the night of the murders, they saw Damien Eccles and another blonde-haired individual who they assumed had been his girlfriend, Dominique Tear, coming from the area in West Memphis known as Robin Hood Hills, covered in mud. There were also individuals that stated that somewhere later in the night, Eccles went into a local coin-operated laundromat to wash clothing. I will concede that the one of the individuals who saw Eccles on the night of the killings and stated that he was covered in mud, her testimony comes somewhat into question because she did have issues and, in fact, flip-flopped on whether or not any of her testimony was truthful in the years afterwards, most notably when the very strong-arm tactics of the West Memphis Three came to bear on her. But we do have other evidence to prove that they, in fact, did commit these crimes. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is West Memphis itself. As the name implies, it is part of the Memphis metropolitan area, separated by a river, Memphis, Tennessee, and then you have West Memphis, Arkansas. West Memphis has major shipping routes that go through the city, and because of that, it sees a lot of truck drivers. Now, there is a myth out there that was put out by one of the convicted that West Memphis was sort of this backwards hick town filled with hillbillies. Anyone who has ever been to the area can tell you that that is, in fact, not the case. By the standards of the South in 1993, West Memphis was kind of looked at as progressive. They had a legal gambling casino that had been in operation for years. And while I would not say that the majority of the people who lived there were middle class, they did have a very strong, upwardly mobile middle class that called that area home. Just like any other place, however, it also had its bad side. West Memphis was and still is pretty well infested with crime and drugs. And a lot of this actually comes from the trailer parks that are outside of the city center. The places that Eccles and Baldwin and Miss Kelly called home. Now, later years, Eccles liked to say that his family was middle class and the trailer parks that they lived in were, in fact, rather idyllic. That is as far from the truth as you can possibly get. All one needs to do is to contact the West Memphis Police Department and ask to see a current crime log and you will very quickly find out that these trailer parks make up a significant amount of the calls that law enforcement receives. Everything from drugs and fist fights to domestic disturbances, much of it comes from these trailer parks. And at the time of these crimes, 
the trailer parks were in full swing. According to Gary Meese, in the years since the trailer parks have really gone downhill, a lot of the trailers are either abandoned or in an extreme state of disrepair, with lawns overgrown and siding falling off of the buildings, broken down cars on cement blocks in yards, that type of thing. Exactly what most people envision when they think of a trailer park. So Damien Eccles in 1993 was an 18-year-old high school dropout with a long list of noted mental illnesses, which we will get to in a little bit. According to Eccles during this period of time and also to court records and individuals interviewed during the investigation of the murder of these three little boys, Damien was said to either be a Wiccan, a black magician, or a Satanist. It really depended on who you chose to speak with about Damien Eccles and his particular set of occult beliefs. And that does play heavily into this story. The one thing, though, that you do need to keep in mind, despite the fact that it was later claimed that the entire pursuit of the West Memphis Three was in fact a witch hunt in a moral satanic panic. There is no evidence that exists to point to such a conclusion. In fact, it was quite a while after the murders that the media even mentioned the fact that there might be a satanic occult involvement in these crimes. One of the things that Eccles and his ilk like to throw out there is that during this period of time, he and Baldwin were three long-haired heavy metal kids wearing black t-shirts, and that the police targeted them because of this. This is, in fact, an absolute outright lie. 1993, Metallica was the largest band in the world. I lived through this period of time, so I remember it very well. Metallica was everywhere. You had bands like Guns N' Roses who were still very popular. You also had other bands like... Megadeth and Skid Row and Danzig and Anthrax who were all extremely popular and not just in one area all across the country. And while many people did in fact view Eccles and Baldwin as being odd, it had nothing to do in their choice of clothing or music. The majority of kids during this period of time who were within a similar age range were also into the type of music that Eccles and Baldwin were into. They also dressed in all black. It was not anything to see a group of teenagers loitering around someplace dressed in black clothing and scary heavy metal t-shirts. We're going to look into Eccles' background before we get into how these boys all came to be friends. In 2001, George W. Woods, a doctor at the Berkeley, California School of Psychiatry, 
attempted to write a report about Damien Eccles and his various history of mental illness. In this report, Woods speaks about Eccles' mother. And I'm going to quote this portion here. Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, was adopted under mysterious circumstances and reared as the only child of her adopted mother, who is trained as a practical nurse, and her adopted father, who is an illiterate blue-collar worker. When Mr. Eccles' mother began junior high school, she developed a bizarre behavior that intensified as she grew older. She stopped attending high school because, in her own words, it made her crazy. She was unable to cope with the stress of school, stopped leaving her home entirely, and received psychiatric treatment. Her adopted mother was forced to quit work in order to stay home and care for her. Mr. Eccles' mother, Pamela, married Mr. Eccles' father, Joe Hutchinson, when she was only 15. So Damien's mother marries this older individual, Joe Hutchinson, when she's 15, and very quickly she becomes pregnant from him. According to Pamela Hutchinson, the pregnancy almost quote-unquote killed me. And she stated that she lost almost 50 pounds over the entire nine-month course of this pregnancy. The Eccles family was extremely unstable. His father would continuously move the family around, oftentimes with no explanation. Which, if you know anything about the development of young children, has a very detrimental effect on their mind as children, especially young children, need a stable mother, father, and home life. So Eccles comes into this world December 11th, 1974, and he was born as Michael Wayne Hutchinson. As an infant, Eccles was described as fretful and nervous and cried all the time. It was noted that Eccles showed very disturbing behavior early on, one case being that he would bang his head against the wall repeatedly for unspecified periods of time. This went on until he was around three years old. So, Damien is this troubled baby. His mother, Sari, suffers a miscarriage and then becomes pregnant again, this time with who would become his baby sister. According to court documents, Eccles was sent to live with his grandmother during his mother's pregnancy as she was unable to care for him. And this is something that would be repeated throughout his life. Eccles goes to live with his grandmother, then he returns home, and after a period of time, he and then his sister are sent to live with the grandmother again because his mother is unable to raise them. Again, according to the report in 2001 by Dr. Woods, quote, like Eccles' mother, his father, Joe Hutchinson, also appears to have suffered from mental instability. Joe Hutchinson is uniformly described as immature, self-absorbed, cruel, and capricious. He chronically neglected and abused his family. He berated his wife and son, set unrealistic expectations, called them degrading names, destroyed their most cherished possessions, terrorized them by threatening to break their bones and hurt them in other ways. 
and isolated them from community and family support by moving frequently, sometimes impulsively leaving a residence only days or weeks after moving in. On one occasion, he forced his wife to leave her hospital bed to move with him to another city. He found sadistic pleasure in donning horrifying rubber masks of hideous monsters and appearing at his son's bedroom window where he terrified Mr. Eccles by making gruesome noises. In addition, Mr. Hutchinson kept his family anxious with his fixation on the notion that others were trying to hurt him. For example, he was convinced people were trying to run him down and constantly harangued his wife and son about the individuals who were trying to kill him. This would eventually lead to Eccles' mother, Pamela, leaving Joe Hutchinson when Eccles was eight years old. She moved in with her mother, who continued to help raise the children. Eventually, Pamela divorces Joe Hutchinson, and according to numerous sources, within days of divorcing Joe, she ends up marrying another individual by the name of Andy Jack Eccles who has been described as an illiterate laborer who worked intermittently as a roofer. So the cards are already stacked pretty heavily against Damien at this period of time, but they're going to get worse, and you're going to see just how bad things become. Along with that, you're going to see his continued mental deterioration. So the now newly christened Eccles family finds what can only kindly be described as a tar paper shack. This shack was located in the middle of crop fields that were routinely sprayed with pesticides. On September 4th, 2000, Jack Eccles gave this statement about Damien Eccles as well as his then ex-wife Pan Hutchinson. I married Pam Hutchinson in 1986, shortly after she split up with her husband, Joe. I had known her from the city through friends that we both had. I adopted both of her children, Michelle and Damien. When I adopted Damien, his name was Michael, and he had to change his last name to Eccles, and while he was doing that, he changed his first name to Damien. Damien was reading about a preacher named Damien who he liked, and that is how he got his name. When we got married, I lived in some apartments in Marion. Just a brief description, Marion is really kind of like a suburb of West Memphis, but it is quite a bit more affluent than West Memphis. Anyways, Eccles continues, Pamela and her children moved in with me and we stayed there for a few months. We finally moved into a house that needed a lot of work that was in the middle of a wheat field. Some folks might call it a shack, but it gave us a roof over our heads and a place to go home to. It was only $35 a month, and we needed some place that did not cost very much. I fixed the house up as best I could. We had a toilet in the bathroom and a sink in the kitchen, but they weren't hooked up right, so we could not use them at first. I fixed up a pump that was supposed to pump in water, but it could only handle a little bit of water at a time. We learned to use as little water as possible. Since water was a problem, we ate off paper plates, so we did not have to do dishes. During part of the year, the water would quit running and we had to bring it in from outside. Most of the time, we went to Pamela's mama's house and my children's houses and filled up gallon jugs. We tried to fill up enough at one time so that we only had to go every other day or so. We had to haul in wood to heat the place, and it got plenty cold in that part of Arkansas. 
I got paid okay when I was roofing, but if there was ever a storm or other bad weather, then I did not work and we did not get a paycheck for that week. I was the only one working in the family, so it was real hard when I missed out on work. Jack further describes how, while they were living in this house, which they stayed in for some sources state three years, others state five years, that Damien was not able to go outside of the house to play in the surrounding fields as they affected his breathing and caused him to become extremely ill. This could be a case of extreme allergies. It could also be the pesticides that were sprayed on the crops that was affecting him. Jack also states that from the point on that they moved into that house, Damien would get extremely bad headaches, which could only be relieved briefly by Jack Eccles putting his son in a headlock, something that, according to Jack, Damien himself asked him to do. Jack also describes periods where Damien would not be unable to sleep no matter what it was that he did or what he was given. To quote Jack, we could never figure out what he was so upset about, but there was no doubt in my mind that he was as miserable as a little boy could be. He further describes how Damien would go through periods where he would become extremely sad and be unable to tell anyone what it was that he was sad about. I'm no expert, but it sounds like there's a possibility that Damien had an extreme case of manic depression or bipolar disorder. It is known that Damien had a very manic personality. He would go from extremely happy to uncontrollable sadness and everywhere in between with no rhyme or reason as to why he was having these mood swings. And this continued on throughout his early adolescence and into his later teen years. Jack also gives further evidence about Damien. Damien would be melancholy and down and without any energy, and then all of a sudden he would be up and running around non-stop to the point that everyone in the family would become upset with him because he was nearly uncontrollable. He also talks about the fact that Damien seems to have suffered from some form of obsessive-compulsive disorder with a need and a desire for things to be in their place, such as his toys as well as a pillow that he apparently kept for much of his life. This could very well be attributed to the turmoil that the family had experienced when Pamela and her first husband got together, the constant moving around and unsurety very well could have placed in Damien this need for a neat and orderly world that he could have control of because obviously young children do not have control over their parents and the decisions that they make. Eccles condition is only going to get worse as the years go on, something that is oftentimes overlooked and or completely dismissed. Because a lot of this information comes from a evidentiary report put together by the defense team while Eccles was on death row, 
And in order to basically get his conviction and sentence thrown out due to mental illness. However, in reality, it had the exact opposite effect because this report, famously known as Exhibit 500, really paints Damien in a damning light. So, Eccles and his family eventually move from the shack, jumping between the Broadway trailer park and Lake Shore Estates, which is in between West Memphis and Marion. Now, according to Eccles, as he's going through all of these mental health issues, he starts attending Marion Junior High. Baldwin was two years younger than Eccles, and according to Eccles in his book Life After Death, Baldwin was a, quote, a skinny kid with a black eye and a long blonde mullet. And what struck Eccles about Baldwin was the fact that he had a backpack filled with music cassettes of heavy metal albums. And the two boys very quickly struck up a friendship, eventually becoming inseparable. Charles Jason Baldwin was born April 11, 1977, to Pamela Grinnell and Charles Baldwin, a marriage that did not appear to have lasted very long. And it appears, at least from the outside, that Baldwin had an upbringing that, while more stable than Damien's, was still as chaotic. Gail eventually remarried uh, this to a man named Terry Ray Grinnell, who has been described as a violent alcoholic, something that did not sit well within their family, as Gail was known to have suffered from several very serious psychiatric episodes that ended up with her having numerous stays in mental hospitals. This was in the months and I believe the year, in fact, before the murder of the three young boys. Now, Jason has remained fairly aloof in the media as far as his own background, trying to paint himself really as this kind of nerdy, aw shucks type of kid. However, the reality is very, very different. It's known that his family resided in Lake Shore. He had two younger brothers, one of whom was named Matt, the other whose name is not available to me. By age 11, at least according to Jason, he had been in trouble with the police at least once, which landed him on a year's probation. However, those records are not available as they are juvenile records and Jason has not released them. When he was 12, Baldwin and his brother Matt and a group of other boys broke into a warehouse or a building. It's really unclear what this facility was, but inside were numerous antique cars, and the boys began jumping up and down on these vehicles and breaking windows and tearing the entire place apart. They were caught by two men who were able to detain the boys and call the police. 
West Memphis 3 supporters have put this out there that this was really just, you know, youthful fun. However, the state probation officer at the time, Jerry Driver, who you will hear about much more as this case unfolds, thought that the actions of the boys was severe enough that they should be sent to a reform school for two years. However, that did not end up happening. Instead, each of the boys got put on probation for a year, and the Baldwin-Grinnell family ended up having to pay $900 in fines. However, his mother only ended up paying $30 of this. When he was 15, so this is after he had met Damien Eccles, it's known that Jason got arrested for shoplifting from a local Walmart. However, instead of getting sent away for this particular crime, he was basically told, if you stay out of trouble for one entire year, this entire thing will go away. So we have all of this going on as we go into the early 90s. Inside the Baldwin house, it was just as chaotic. His mother, as I stated, is known to have had numerous psychiatric incidents. Somewhere in this period, January, February 1992, while his mother, Gail's going through all of this mental distress, Jason's father, Charles, decides to come and visit, and he spends some time with the boys, which prompted them to inform their mother that they may, in fact, consider going to live with their father for a period of time. This, in turn, led Gail Grinnell to have another suicide attempt, which was thwarted by Jason, who apparently found his mother slashing her wrists, was able to restrain her, and call the police department. In a school report that he wrote in April of 1993, Jason stated, once my mother tried to commit suicide, and I know how I felt when that happened, it was pretty devastating since I was the one who found her and called 911 and kept her alive. But my mom is well and happy now, and so am I. However, that could not be further from the truth. In fact, Gail Grinnell had a history of mental illness that included hearing male voices, seeing visions, and believing that she was possibly dying from AIDS. But there is more to paint Jason Baldwin in his own words that shows him in a rather more demonic light than the media would like to portray him as. Also from a school paper, Baldwin describes a fight that he had with his younger brother Matt. Quote, I am usually a calm person and can take mostly of anything, but sometimes I get angry, and when I do get angry, it is usually not a pretty sight. One time I had to babysit my little brother. One is eight, the other is 13. I let Matt, the 13-year-old, go outside to play or wherever he want, and I let Terry, the 8-year-old, have friends over. That was a mistake. I let them go in my room and play Super Nintendo while I watched TV in the living room. I thought I had everything under control, but I was wrong. Those kids got to fighting over the game and tore everything up in my room. It was a mess. I couldn't believe it. I made them clean everything up and leave. Then Matt got home, griping as usual, and started aggravating me. He would run up and hit me and say, You can't hit back. 
I'll tell mom. So I said, tell mom, boy, because you're fixing to get it. I ran over there and grabbed him in a chokehold and held him there until his face turned bright red and then let him go. I said, mess with me again and it'll be worse. So he picked up a broom and tried to hit me with it. I grabbed the handle, pulled it a little ways, and then pushed and knocked him down. He didn't do anything else but say, I'm still telling. I said so, and he did, and I got grounded for nothing. Gary Meese, in his books on the West Memphis Three, points out some rather interesting things from this particular school assignment as it relates to Jason Baldwin, and I'm going to quote them verbatim here. Quote, Jason tended to bottle up his anger until it exploded. Jason was deeply resentful over having to babysit his brothers and be the man of the house. There was a family pattern of violence with Matt not hesitating to attack with a broom after being choked by Jason until his face turned red. Jason was used to handling defiant younger children. Jason often felt he was not treated fairly, a complaint that has cropped up again and again in this public statement. Jason expressed no remorse about overreacting to Matt's provocation. He got, quote, grounded for nothing except choking and knocking down his little brother. So there we have a bit of a view of the two main characters in this story, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles, as we're going into the early part of 1992-93. It was noted by those who knew Jason that when Damien left middle school and moved on to high school, Jason became somewhat rudderless. However, when he himself moved up to high school, he was really able to hook back up with Eccles, who had by that point dropped out. And Jason began to dress similarly to Damien, as well as take on numerous of his other characteristics, most notably adopting Damien's speech patterns, which led to those who knew Jason to notice a change in personality. Some have speculated that Damien Eccles was, in fact, a paranoid schizophrenic, while Jason Baldwin is a psychopath due to various things he has done throughout his life, his calm, unemotional demeanor, the violent outbursts that we know about. And these same individuals have posited the idea that it wasn't Damien who was in fact the ringleader on the night that the three boys died, but instead it was Jason who kind of, knowing his best friend had these violent psychotic ideations, egged him on into participating in these murders. And that very well could be. I am not a trained psychiatrist or psychologist by any means. We are going to be talking about Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. at length in another episode, so I'm going to leave him alone at this point and just focus on Jason and Damien. Particularly, we're going to go back to focusing on Damien. According to the report by Dr. Woods, around the age of 16, Damien began to feel that he was not, in fact, human. This coincided with the worsening of his mental conditions. 
which include rapid change of thought pattern, oftentimes uncontrollable, hallucinations including hearing voices and seeing physical manifestations, which according to Eccles appeared as smoke, which would often shift and dance before his eyes, although he knew that they were in fact solid, real, corporeal individuals. Eccles began to believe that he himself was made of the same substance as these smoke figures. Eccles self-admittedly began to cut himself as ideas of suicide began to dance through his head. Damien stated that he began to be affected by many things. Quote-unquote, literally everything drove me crazy. Everything hurt from the smell of water to green grass, brown grass. Noting that the way people smelled particularly affected him, as did other things, such as the smell of water. Damien described how his mind would roll like a television screen out of control whenever it was going to rain or he was near a large body of water. He also complained that the change of seasons had a strong effect on him, particularly fall and winter, which it should be noted is when many people typically feel a sense of despondency and depression. We'll get into Damien's specific psychiatric stays at another point, but I do want to shed some light on another part from this evaluation that Dr. Woods prepared, in which he states, quote, Mr. Eccles has been evaluated on three separate occasions by three different psychologists, each of whom administered a battery of tests. A prominent feature of each evaluation was the Minnesota Multifacic Personality Inventory, MMPI, which was administered on June 8, 1992, September 2, 1992, and February 20, 1994. The independent test results were quite consistent. All revealed valid profiles and strong indications of depression, mania, severe anxiety, delusions, and psychosis. Test results for the June 8, 1992 MMPI reflected elevations on scores of psychotic thinking, including hallucinations, paranoid ideation, and delusion as well as severe anxiety and other related emotional disturbances. The suggested diagnoses were schizophrenia, disorganized type, and bipolar disorder, manic. Individual responses on this test revealed that Mr. Eccles was afraid of losing his mind, had bizarre thoughts, and had very peculiar experiences. Three months later, on September 2, 1992, a second MMPI was administered. The test revolts very closely paralleled the findings of the earlier MMPI. Shortly before Mr. Eccles' trial began in 1994, he was administered the MMPI a third time for the purpose of identifying mitigating circumstances. Like the other two, this MMPI revealed psychotic thought processes consistent with schizophrenia. Specific indicators of a thought disorder include mental confusion, persecutory ideas, acute anxiety, and depressed suicidal ideation. 
Prior to and during his murder trial, Damien Eccles suffered from a severe psychiatric disorder characterized by enduring delusions, auditory and visible hallucinations, and severe mood swings ranging from suicidal depression to extreme mania. Now, in May of 1992, the Eccles family was living in the Lakeshore Trailer Park when, on May 5th, 1992, this is exactly a year before the murders of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers, Damien Eccles and his sister Michelle were referred to family treatment by the Department of Human Services. This stemmed from allegations made by Damien's sister that, quote, child reported her stepfather has been sexually abusing her for a long time. Her no mother knows about it, but has done nothing to stop it. Sexual abuse reported occurred periodically from age seven until present. The abuse includes fondling. I don't know whether or not Damien's stepfather actually sexually abused his stepsister or not. It's more probable than anything else, especially when you consider the amount of emotional disorders that the children within that household displayed there's a very good chance that Damien either experienced some of this abuse himself and or witnessed it or knew about it and felt powerless to stop it, which may have helped push his own mental issues further into the red. Now, according to a report written up by a social worker, it appears that the Eccles family has extreme problems related to an ongoing history of sexual abuse, suspected emotional problems, and undefined interpersonal relationship disorders. Mr. Eccles admits to being overly affectionate with Michelle and to have been charged for indecently exposing himself to an older daughter. However, Mrs. Eccles states that she feels Michelle is lying as she has been skipping school and sexually acting out. This, to me, is a classic case of a mother who is dependent on a worthless piece of garbage doing everything that she can to ignore what is going on within the house and protect the individual that is responsible for these things. If Michelle was skipping school and was acting in an inappropriate manner, it's almost a guarantee that she is doing these things almost as a cry for help. Anybody who is acquainted with childhood sexual abuse or CSA knows that things that are out of character for a child, such as skipping school, acting rebellious, or acting out in an inappropriate sexual manner, are all good indicators that there more probably than not is some form of sexual abuse happening within the home. In contrast, according to this report by the social worker, Damien Eccles, on the other hand, holds his adopted father in low regards and feels that the allegations are in fact true. Miss Eccles states Damien is in need of counseling and evaluation as he feels he is smarter than everyone else and verb will verbalize that fact. He also reportedly has little regard for others and stated he feels people have no true feeling for each other. 
Their main purpose is to use and bring harm to others around him. Miss Eccles reports that Damien has been attempting to fight with her on occasion. All of that's going on. It's causing massive friction between the children and their mother and obviously their stepfather. Damien really begins to undergo a personality change. This is reportedly when he began to grow his hair out, wear all black clothing, and grow his nails out to a quote-unquote perfect one and a half inches, which were sharpened to points. And then Damien starts to take notice of girls. Damien ends up getting into a relationship with a girl younger than him by the name of Deanna Holcomb. And this is the first real public indication that something is wrong with Damien Eccles. Apparently, Damien really became obsessed with this young girl, and it led to her parents insisting that the two of them break up. This, in turn, led to some form of a violent outburst by Damien Eccles, which resulted in charges of terroristic threatening. So, Damien plots with Deanna that they're going to run away together, and Damien's mother ends up giving her 10 or $15. She was unsure of how much she had given at the time, but it was all the money that she had on her so that Damien and Deanna can run away to California. On May 19, 1992, both Damien Eccles and Deanna Holcomb were reported as runaways. Police eventually found them in an abandoned mobile home in Lakeshore, hiding inside of the closet. When the police found them, it was noted that the teens were, quote, partially nude from the waist down and they were arrested and charged with burglary and sexual misconduct. And it's at this point that a juvenile officer by the name of Jerry Driver, who plays a very prominent part in the entire saga of this case, becomes involved in Damien Eccles' life for the first time. And to show you how Eccles likes to twist reality of things. In a letter published in the book Yours for Eternity, Damien publishes a letter he wrote to his current wife, Lori Davis, in which he states, quote, When I was 16, I was very much in love. Her name was Deanna. One day we skipped school together. We walked for miles until we found a place that was absolutely beautiful. There were hills and the grass was so full and soft and green. The sky was gray and overcast. We spent hours talking, telling each other things that we had never told one another. Living soul or worst fears. Our most wished for dreams and we made love several times. I never suspected that would be the last time that I ever saw her. There no, there's no way that words can ever do this memory justice, but it's a day that has returned to haunt me every day of my life. No mention is the fact that Damien told a psychiatrist later that as he was being led to police car, he saw Deanna's father approaching her and was able to work his hands loose 
so that he was able to grab a police officer's gun, which had been left in the vehicle with him. In this report with the psychiatrist, Damien states that he fully intended to shoot the man if Deanna's father acted in what Damien perceived to be an aggressive manner towards his daughter. From this arrest, the police went to the Eccles home and searched Damien's room, taking note that he had a dog skull which was described as a decoration for his room, a book of shadows in which Damien outlined his progress along the Wiccan path, along with numerous books dealing with Wiccan and black magic. So Damien ends up getting sent to the Craighead County Juvenile Detention Center in Jonesboro, where he informs staff that he intends to hang himself, at which point Damien is transferred to the East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center, where he's given a Milan Adolescent Personality a MAPI test. Basically what came out of this is that Damien was written as being little more than a narcissist with delusions of grandeur and a desire to gain revenge over those he feels have wronged him in the past. It's also noted that Damien feels that he can undo these past grievances if he's able to, quote-unquote, provoking fear and an intimidation in others. Because of all of this, Damien ends up being involuntarily committed to the Charter Hospital in Little Rock for a longer period of evaluation. Damien told people at the hospital that he and Deanna had a pact to commit suicide had they been stopped, although Deanna denied this. Eccles ends up going to Charter Hospital for a month, where in his intake papers it says that he has a history of physical aggression towards others and their property, noting one, fire-setting behavior by history, potential danger to property, excessive irritability and anger that is potentially dangerous and persistent, involvement in bizarre and unusual behavior. All of that stems from Eccles' behavior in school. It's known and admitted by Damien that he set fire to a science classroom at some point during the school year, as well as got into a fight with another boy whom, by Damien's own admission, he tried to remove the eyes of, trying to scratch his eyes out with his long fingernails. There are also other instances of violent and inappropriate behavior in school that, according to Damien, led to him being suspended seven times during that current school year. We're going to get into these other things that Damien got himself into trouble with in the next episode, but we are really at the hour at this point. I hope that those of you who requested this have enjoyed this first installment of the West Memphis Three Redux, and those who are just finding this show have enjoyed it as well. Those who don't know, the Death Cast is really a very fact-based show. 
I do extreme deep dives on various cases, such as Jimmy Savile. I just finished a deep dive on Cyril Smith. I have covered Charles Manson and the family in the past, the Atlanta child murders, just to name a few. So I hope that you will seek those episodes out. Until next time, The Death Cast is a co-production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasts. Stay morbid.